thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Let's thank our team one more time this morning for leading us out. I want to say special thanks. Uh, and a dear friend of mine, Chip, came in to play drums with us today. His wife, Amanda, and his kids are here. And I'll tell you what, man, he's just a... I love Chip, and he came in to help fill in the gap today and did just a, a wonderful job. And uh, man, I love our team so much, and I love being back at Connect Church. Last week, we were on vacation. Uh, a wonderful family offered us their beach house to crash in uh, this past week, and uh, my kids are on spring break. And, and so we took it. I just want to say this, Dominic, Pastor Dominic, did a wonderful job preaching the Word of God. Just did a... A great job, yeah, and you know, honestly, as his older brother, and we don't talk about that much, but, but man, I'm so proud of him. I'm a little concerned how much he medicated mom while we were gone um, after her surgery, but besides that, uh, just super proud of Dominic and the way that he, um, he preached last week, and Aaron and I were able uh, down near Destin Beach just to worship with you guys last Sunday morning, and I'm just going to, by the way, just warning, just to let you know. My kids are getting older, so every time they're on spring break, I'm leaving. Every time they're on vacation, we're just going to go do that. Because for those of you parents who are kind of empty nesters, my my oldest daughter's approaching 10 years old, and I'm going, I only have just a few more spring breaks with her. And so we're going to do that every time we can as a family. But we sure missed you guys and grateful to be back today. As we continue in our Ask Me a Question series, I want to remind you of a book maybe that you read in your childhood. The book is entitled Henny Penny. Did anybody read that book? Let me tell you a famous line. You ready? The sky is falling. Right, remember the story, right, this fable, this old English fable. Henny Penny was out in the yard and she was pecking away at some corn when an acorn had fallen from a tree, hit her on the head, and she was convinced then on out. The sky is falling. We must go and tell the king, she said. And in her panic and in her fear, she would recruit other barnyard animals to come alongside of her. I believe there was a rooster. There was a duck and a goose, and, and maybe there was a turkey somewhere in the mix. And, and she also, in her panic and fear, she invited a fox to come along the way. Now, if you'll read the early renditions of this story, you may not want to do that before bedtimes with young children, right? Because that fox kind of takes advantage of the situation. And let's just say he ate well that night. But anyway, the whole part of this story is that the sky was falling, And somebody had to go and tell the king. And so they went on their way to go and to tell the king. You know, sometimes that's a pretty accurate picture of how we believers deal with the end times, isn't it? In panic and in fear, we run around as if the sky is falling. The sky is falling. The end is near. And panic and fear begin to mark our lives. In any conversation that we have about the very end times, the sky is falling. Well, today's question that we received deals with the end times in Scripture. But I want you to hear me, and I want to preface the entire sermon today on this truth. You ready? Church, the sky is not falling, but the sun is coming. The sky is not falling. But the sun 
but Jesus is coming. For the believer, conversations of the end times should not induce panic. Rather, it should serve as an invitation for you and I to prepare for the coming of our King. To prepare our hearts, to prepare our lives and our families, our community and the world for the coming of our King. Did you know this, that in the New Testament alone, there are 318 references to the second coming of Jesus. Nearly 1 in 13 verses in the New Testament deal or speak to or reference the coming of Jesus Christ again. In fact, the second coming of Jesus is talked about far more than even his first coming in Bethlehem. Meaning this, that the second coming of Jesus was the most awaited, the most anticipated, and the most celebrated event on the calendar for the church. By the way, then and now. The second coming of Jesus. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you even thought about him coming again? When was the last time that even the question of Jesus coming again made any difference on how you lived your day, how you labored, how you loved. We find in the early church, it was on their minds, it was their their very thoughts in their everyday that Jesus is coming again soon. We see this in Titus. Watch this. By the way, there's Henny Penny. Good looking gal. Here we go. You ready? Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. By the way, verse 11 speaks to Jesus' first coming. And watch this unfold. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Watch this in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus was something they awaited, that they anticipated, that was celebrated so much by the early church. And so the question we deal with today is a loaded question. And so I'm going to throw it out there, and we're going to spend the next two weeks talking through the end times. And here's a question, you ready? It's a good one. That why do so many in the church today Believe in a rapture that happens pre-tribulation or before the tribulation when such teaching and such a view is relatively new. Only came back in the 1800s with John Darby and Schofield of the great Schofield Bible. Why is it that so many believe that Jesus will rapture the church before the time of tribulation and great tribulation? Man, I think this is a great question. And a good place for us just to camp out for the next couple of weeks. For us just to to dive into the Word of God. For us to dabble a little bit in eschatology, which is the study of the end times. And so this is where we're going to be today. And so I invite you just to dig in together. So let's begin this study with some healthy expectations here, okay? You ready? The exact sequence of events, the exact timing of events... The exact explanation of events in the context of the end times in Scripture, I want you to hear me. They have been debated by wonderful, godly, Jesus-loving, Word of God-serving 
believers, you ready, for centuries. By the way, one or two sermons will not exhaust this. Sorry. But you know what? We're going to attempt to together by studying this, to come to a place where every believer in the house It brings their their heart and life to the place where you're awaiting, where you're anticipating. And in your everyday life, you are celebrating the truth, the reality that Jesus is coming again, again soon. And so as we begin to look at various sequences of events and timings and, and explanations of events, I want you to realize that there is some differing opinions, approaches. There's there's different applications to what the Scripture teaches about the end times. But there is one truth we can rally around, one truth that is incontrovertible, that is undebatable. It is a truth that was essential to the early church and is essential to us, the church, today, that without question, without hesitation, without doubt, hear me, church, Jesus is coming again. And that can serve as the very foundation of any conversation we have on the end times. It's important that we rally there. We must get that right. I want to borrow some words from a man by the name of Ben Kramer. He said this, imagine if our Christian view of the end times was centered on preparing our hearts for Christ, not the Antichrist. Centered on the mark of the Lamb and not the mark of the beast. Prepared for redeeming the earth rather than just escaping it and centered on hope rather than fear. You know what? I think that's a pretty good starting place for all of us. That this is where we begin. As a point, conversation of celebration, not that of panic and fear. Because hear me, believer, if you are in Christ, there is nothing to panic about. There's nothing to be afraid of. By the way, let me just remind you, that the sky's not falling, but the sun is coming. That Jesus is coming. Now I want you to hear me. We don't divide churches or believers along the lines of sequencing and timing of the events of the end times. This is not a matter of fellowship one with another. We don't stomp out of the room since we've planned to connect church. And there have been several times over the past three years where people in the middle of my message will stand up and they'll stomp out of this room because I did not preach the preference they had towards Scripture. When it comes to these end times discussions, maybe just maybe we don't stomp out of the room on each other. If we have different preferences towards the sequencing and, and, and the timing of this, maybe just maybe we're real slow to invite cancel culture into the life of the church maybe. And maybe there are some things that we could, we could debate and maybe even disagree about but at the end of the day, go, you know what? But Jesus is coming, and so I can labor, and I can love, and I can live in the light of his second coming with any brother or sister in Christ who will do the same. Maybe, just maybe, together, as his church, as his bride, we can await, we can anticipate, and we can celebrate the coming of Jesus together. So what is this rapture referenced in the question today? What is this rapture that they speak of? Well, you'll be probably surprised to find out the word rapture is not in the Bible. 
It's not necessarily a biblical word as much as it is a theological word. It's not found in the Bible. In fact, the word rapture is borrowed from the Latin language, a translation of a word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. By the way, if you got your Bibles, let's go there together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the word rapture is a translation of a word found in these passages. And also today, this passage is going to allow you and I just for a few moments to, to celebrate this incredible event that will take place at some point soon in the future. So let's begin reading this together. You ready? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. But we do not want you, Paul writes to Thessalonian believers, we don't want you to be uninformed. Maybe your translation says ignorant. We want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. Interesting word we're going to come back to. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So we don't grieve like those who, who don't have a hope. You see, what Paul's addressing here was a group of believers, the Thessalonians, who were awaiting, who were anticipating, who were celebrating the coming of the Lord, but every passing day Jesus did not come back yet. They were bearing loved ones who were dying in Christ. The Thessalonians began to be worried about them. But hey, when Jesus comes again, are they going to miss it? Because they're, they're dead. And so Paul writes them in this letter and begins to assure them with great comfort and hope. Now listen, they're, gonna, they're not going to miss out on Jesus' second coming. And watch what he says here. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that an interesting phrase for believers who've died? That they've fallen asleep. In the Greek language, the word is Koinmaterion. Koinmaterion. And it was used in the first century, this word asleep, to describe an overnight sleeping situation where somebody's on a journey and they get tired. And so they find an overnight accommodation where they can rest and then they can continue on their journey later. That's what the word asleep means. And so really the Bible paints a picture of our bodies when we die in Christ. You ready? We know this theologically. Dominic covered this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ and our spirits are with Christ. But what of our bodies? You know what the Bible describes our bodies as? You ready? They're just in a place where they have some overnight accommodations because the journey of our bodies are yet to be done. Meaning this, that when Jesus comes again, that there's going to be a resurrection of our bodies, that they will be glorified. We will be reunited with our bodies and so live on in eternity. You, you know what word in the English language we get from that word asleep in the Greek? Cemetery. Every time you drive by a cemetery and you know a believer's buried in there, for every one of you who buried a loved one in the ground, I want you to know every time you pull up to that cemetery, all that cemetery is is some overnight accommodations because the journey of your loved one's body is not done. There is a future destination, and we find it right here in Scripture. Our bodies are described as being asleep. And just by the way, here in 1 Thessalonians 4, I just want you to know this is the moment where I'll exchange my two dad bods for my Thor bod and go shirtless for all eternity. Just so you know. It's just a warning. Pretty incredible moment. But by the way, this rapture that we speak of is not an event only for those who died in Christ. But watch this for those 
who are alive at his coming. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left, hey, hey, by the way, selfishly, like every pastor who has preached for the past 2,000 years before me, I want to be in this category. I, I want to be the one that those who are still alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Because here's what happens. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. By the way, caught up together is the Latin translation of the word rapture. It's where we get the word from. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, scare each other to death. No, Therefore, in great panic and fear, therefore encourage one another with these words. Today's message about the second return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is not one of fear and panic, but of great hope and celebration that ought to encourage Every believer. What an incredible moment. What is found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is what we refer to as the rapture. It is biblical. By the way, there's little disagreement in the church that this event will take place. It's a matter of fact. However, the timing of this event, the timing of the rapture, well, there's a little bit debate. And really, there's a lot of debate around it in the life of the church. And by the way, it's also the reason for the question today. Now, there are those who believe this, that the rapture of the church, what we just described here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the return of Jesus are the exact same event at the end of the tribulation of the Great Tribulation, at the end of seven years that are outlined in Revelation chapter 6 through uh, chapter 19, that they see it as the exact same event. So the church goes through this time of tribulation and great tribulation. And when Jesus comes again, Revelation chapter 19, at the battle of Armageddon, there's this, there's this rapture. And I'm going to tell you something. Some really good and godly Jesus-loving people who I admire and respect and read all their stuff believe that. And you know what I say? It's probably a good point. There's some validity there. Like, I respect how they get there. Now, it's not where I land. It's not where, where I lean. But man, they do some really good work towards that. And then there's another group of people who believe this, that the second coming of Jesus happens in two parts. Number one, when Christ comes for his church, what we just read here in 1 Thessalonians 4, at the rapture, and also later on at the end of the tribulation and the great tribulation, seven years later, when Christ comes with his church, at the battle of, of Armageddon. M meaning this, that, that Jesus raptures or he rescues his church, takes them out of the world during this time of tribulation and great tribulation. Hey, by the way, that's where I lean. Th that's, where, that's where I stand as I study Scripture and as I, as I study and I, I long to understand what God is doing in the end times. This is where, where I stand. And I feel this way because I believe there's great biblical evidence there. And just to say this, to be clear, and it's my belief and sincere belief that before the tribulation, the great tribulation, those seven years of Revelation 6 through 19 described therein, 
that Jesus rescues and raptures his church before that time. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit why this week. We're going to carry this over into next week. But I want to address what the argument was in the question posed to us. The argument was this, and by the way, I've heard this for years. Why do so many Christians believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church when it's a relatively new idea? It didn't come about until the 1800s with John Darby and C.I. Schofield. It didn't exist before then. Why is it that so many believe it? Well, well here's, here's my argument to that. Is that I will argue that this pre-tribulation rapture is not a new idea. It's not a new thought at all. I think we find it, first of all, in First and Second Thessalonians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture, I believe it's as old as the, the church is. But also... I'm going I'm to make this argument that we find this view of Jesus rescuing and rapturing the church before the time of great tribulation. Man, we find it in early Christian thought. Now, it's not to bore you. I'm going to give you just a couple exceptions. We're just going to blow them by this. But let me address the argument. First of all, in around 150 A.D., there was an important work done. It's called the Shepherd of Hermes. Now, it's not, it does not belong in the Bible. It's a Christian literary work. But in the very same generation of Jesus in the New Testament and most of those apostles and disciples of Jesus, around 150 A.D., we find in this Christian literary work this phrase. And let me just read it to you. That as the author writes, he says this, that the church will have escaped the great tribulation on account of their faith. Evidence in really early writing in the early church, that this idea that maybe Jesus raptures and rescues the church before this tribulation time, that it's alive and it's well in the early church. Well, let's go on to the Middle Ages, somewhere between the 4th and the 6th century A.D. There we find a man by the name of Ephraim, the Syrian, or one of his scholars, preaches a sermon, and the sermon's entitled this, The Last Days. The Antichrist in the end of the world. Let me share with you just a small excerpt from that sermon. He preaches this, For all the elect and the saints of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord. Again, whether you study the early church, the church in the Middle Ages, or in the Great Reformation time, you see that alive and well is the viewpoint and the thought that maybe, just maybe, Jesus rescues and raptures the church before this time of tribulation. And so I just want to put that argument to rest a little bit, that it is way older than the 1800s. It didn't begin with John Darby or C.I. Schofield, but it's been around for quite a long time. Well, then, Anthony, why is it that you really hold to it? Well, have you ever seen how the Bible describes the time of great tribulation and tribulation? That's seven years. Now, let me just point this out. In the first three and a half years of, the great, of this tribulation period, we, we refer to it as the tribulation. Next week we're going to talk about what happens there. But in the second three and a half years, it is what is pretty universally referred to as the great tribulation. The worst part of this time period. You ever listen to how the Bible describes it? Let me just give you a few passages. Let's first go to the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And I love what he writes here. He says, there will be a time of distress... Such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
there will be a time of distress and a pretty bleak picture. And then you go over to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus starts talking about this time. For then there will be a time of great distress, unequal from the beginning of the word until, world until now, and to never be equaled again. You start going, okay, this sounds pretty awful. But not only did the Old Testament prophecy speak to it, not only did Jesus teach about it, but John gives us a picture in the book of Revelation at the beginning of this time, what this period, this seven-year period of tribulation and great tribulation is all about. And let's just take a peek for a moment. Verse 15. Then the kings, as he writes a description of this time, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from, watch this, the wrath of the Lamb. Interesting word, wrath. We're going to come back to it. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand against it? The scariest description, the most troubling description of this seven-year period is that it is the day of wrath, of God's wrath. You don't believe that's terrifying? Take a look at the cross and what the wrath of God did to the body of Jesus. And yet this period is marked by the very wrath of God. The great day of his wrath to come. Now, there's an argument that, listen, the church is going to go through this time of tribulation and great tribulation because, man, Christians go through trials and tribulations all the time. Hey, absolutely. John chapter 16, verse 33. By the way, went King Jimmy Version here, but watch this. You ready? These things I have spoken, Jesus says unto you, that in me ye may have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. L listen to me. Every Christian life is marked by trial and tribulation without question. You've known them. You've lived through them. You've experienced them absolutely. But I want you to hear me. What takes place in the book of Revelation across these seven years is not the ordinary trial and, and tribulations of the believer. Rather, it is an extraordinary period of time where God is pouring out his wrath. And this is the reason why. And I'll share with you more next week. This is the reason why I believe that Jesus rescues and raptures his church before the time, the seven years of tribulation and great tribulation. You ready? Here's the reason. The church cannot and will never face the wrath of God. Hey, hey, believer in Christ, the wrath of God will never touch you because it tortured and killed Jesus for you. Hey, the wrath of God will never again, no, not ever, be a part of your story. The church cannot and will never Face the wrath of God. Listen to how Paul writes to the church concerning these times. In 3 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves report to us concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. You know what Paul's doing? Hey, church, hey, Thessalonian church, man, way to go loving Jesus and living for Jesus. And he addresses them, and to wait for his son from heaven. Remember the sky's not falling, the sun's coming? 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who, watch this language, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why is, why is the church not present in this time of tribulation, and great tribulation? Because Jesus has delivered us from the wrath that is, that is to come. Watch this, you ready? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 and 11, for God has not destined us for wrath. Hey, remember, wrath will never touch you. It'll never be a part of your story again. He's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are, you are doing. Let me just say it again. Believer in Christ, the wrath of God will never touch you and will never again be a part of your story. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, Anthony, if we don't face wrath, what happens? Well, you go to the book of Revelation. And you, you, you begin to see this, that the word church appears 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. But significantly, the church is not seen again until chapter 19. During the tribulation and the great tribulation outlined in chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation, God's wrath is referenced 13 times as being poured out or brought against the earth in humanity. In other words... In the entire lengthy description of the tribulation in, in Revelation, the church is noticeably absent from the earth. Why? Because during the time of God's wrath on earth, the church is worshiping God in heaven. The church is worshiping Him in heaven. So, so let me just reiterate, just in case you haven't caught it yet. Hear me, brother and sister in Christ. You will not face the wrath of God ever, known ever. Now, you'll not see his wrath in the ordinary, everyday trials and tribulations you face, nor will you face his wrath in the great tribulation that is to come in a future tomorrow. And you say, well, what hope is there then? I love how Cornelius, an author, wrote, he said this, the return of Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. Guys, as I look across this room, I see lives of people who've had a lot of bad news. You ready? Bad news handed down by a doctor. The bad news of a dream that has died. A relationship that is broken. A marriage that is, that is done. There's bad news of just being tired and lonely and hurting. So what good news is there to be had? You ready? That it won't always be this way. Because your king is coming soon. The sky is not falling, but the sun is coming. I love another author the way he puts it. He says, the promise of the second coming shows us the good old days are always yet ahead. Some of you look at your life, you go, man, the good old days are behind me. 
Not so with the second coming of Jesus. You see, the good old days, the best of days, are still yet ahead for those of us who are in Christ. Church, the sky is not falling. The sun is coming. Hey, believer, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come today? Have you lived and labored and and loved in such a way that if He were to come this very night, that you would hear from your King, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, Anthony, I don't agree with you on the sequencing and the timing of the rapture. It's okay. As long as we're good on Jesus coming again, man, let's, serve, let's live and labor and love together, people. To get busy about the Father's business of people in heaven. Let's just, let's just get together. I had a professor um, in seminary who very much disagreed with me on the time and the sequencing of the rapture. And he was a whole lot smarter than me. And one day he said, Anthony, I want to tell you where I really stand. I said, okay, go ahead. He said, I'm praying for rapture. And I'm preparing for tribulation. I said, you know what? And that's good. Maybe that's not such a bad place to be. Adrian Rogers would say this, no matter whether you believe we go before tribulation or we go through tribulation, we agree that we go with Jesus. And that is what matters the most. We agree that we go with Jesus. And so where does that leave us today? Anthony, with some of this information, not all, and we're going to go through some more next week, where does that leave today? You ready? It is a challenge and a reminder that was very much alive in the early church that needs to be alive again in the church today. You ready? That you and I are committed. We are bought into living and loving and laboring in light of the second coming of Jesus. To tell a world, many of which have yet to hear of his first coming, to share with this world the good news that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves. About two years ago, I'll never forget the first Sunday that Connect Church shut down because of the pandemic. Goodness, I hated that. Hated it. Now, I'll never forget that we were sitting in a room, and Joel, you'll remember this, there's just a few of us, because we didn't all want to die of the pandemic that day, and And we had just a few volunteers, and for the first time, by the way, every pastor in the world on that weekend, all of us became televangelists, just so you know. I lined up what few volunteers we had, and I had them sit underneath that camera stand so that I could just see somebody to preach to. It's very hard to preach to a lens and a box. And I shared this illustration. We talked a little bit about the Lord's return then, and I share that illust- an illustration that I want to share with you again today uh, because it just means something to me. You know, as a dad, I have, I have three daughters and, and a little boy. And, uh, and every so often, for whatever reason, we've got something special coming up and I've got to get the, the girls ready and dressed up. One of the most terrifying moments of that time is the time it takes to comb their hair. I don't have this issue. But my daughter's hair 
when you start combing that thing, talk about the Battle of Armageddon. It is absolutely devastating. There's a lot of tears, and then sometimes they cry too. It is just, it is just hard as a dad. But I'm going to tell you something. When we go someplace special, girls, we always, we always got to comb your hair. I read the story once of a pastor. He shared this, that one day a mom and her daughter came to church. Well, the pastor would preach a message much like this one, to celebrate and prepare for the, the soon return of Jesus. Well, he got done preaching that day, and the little girl had listened intently, and when they got back into the vehicle to go home, she began quizzing her mama. Don't you know that our kids are really good at asking questions? She said, Mama, do you really believe that Jesus is coming again? And her mom said, listen, absolutely I do. Hey, Mama, do you think that Jesus could come today? Sweetheart, yeah. I think that Jesus could come today. Do, do you think that Jesus could come in the next hour? Why, yes. Do you think that Jesus could come any minute? Yes, sweetheart, I think he could. And she said, hey, Mama, would you comb my hair? Church. Jesus is coming again. It's time as a church that we comb our hair, that we are ready for the soon coming of Jesus, that we live and we labor and we love in light of His second coming. The problem is, is the church has stopped combing their hair and we've stopped living in light. Of Jesus' second coming. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.